0: The following program is a presentation of the Wartime Podcast Network in association with PCN. I hope you enjoy the program, and remember, history is best when it's shared. After a great victory over Union forces in June 1863, Robert E. Lee marches his army to Pennsylvania. The advancing Confederates clash with General Meade's Union army at Gettysburg, beginning the most famous battle of the Civil War. Explore our nation's past and the Gettysburg battlefield with the Gettysburg Collection. Become a member to stream the library online. Learn more at GettysburgCollection.com.
1: Welcome to Battlefield, Pennsylvania. We're on location in the city of Franklin, Benango County. In 1779, Colonel Daniel Broadhead led an expedition from Fort Pitt along the Allegheny River in search of Native American villages to destroy. I'm Todd Abele. I'm producer of Battlefield, Pennsylvania, but today I'll be your host and our regular host, Brady Kreitzer, will be our guest. Brady, thanks for being on. Uh, you brought us the idea about four years ago for Battlefield Pennsylvania, and since then we've done 30 episodes and in four years. But I have never asked you the question, tell us about your background. So uh, how'd you become a historian?
0: Uh, that's a good question, Todd. Um, I've, I've always been a writer. You know, my, my, my entire life I've enjoyed writing all things fiction, poetry, uh, but it was always very uh, on my own. I wasn't trained. I never really had a background in it. And I can remember, um, when I first went to college, you know, sort of exploring how I could make a career in writing. Uh, I was in an intro to theater class, one of these liberal studies classes that you have, and I was talking to someone, and uh, they had mentioned they were taking class in colonial American history. Uh, And for me, I remember thinking, that sounds like the worst class in the world. Like, what a nightmare. Um, But then I took a a class. It was, as a matter of fact, that same class uh, with a professor at Slippery Rock University named David Dixon. And it really really changed my life because I saw how history uh, not just as an idea but as a discipline allows you to research uh, and really dig into some material that's foreign to a lot of people and gives you ample opportunities to write Uh, so for me as someone who loves to read and write and reach out to people history was just uh, a perfect uh, a perfect romance for me
1: And what are you doing right now
0: Uh, I teach history at Robert Morris University Uh, And uh, in the evenings, I moonlight on the Pennsylvania Cable Network as the host of Battlefield Pennsylvania.
1: And you also have a podcast?
0: I have a podcast called Wartime. You can find it on iTunes, uh, wartimepodcast.com, where we talk about all different elements of history, not just uh, Pennsylvania history, but American history, ancient history. Uh, Again, for me, it's always been a question of uh, how do I reach people with history? I know the material is interesting. Uh, The material speaks for itself. Somehow people do manage to make it boring, which I'll never know how they do it. Uh, But I always explore new avenues of reaching out. So uh, I I write books, uh, six of them, my newest one coming out this summer, Battlefield Pennsylvania. Uh, I have the weekly podcast people can listen to in their car or while they jog or wherever. Uh, And of course, uh, uh, here on the show. Uh, I think everybody has time for history. Not everyone has time to sit down and read a book every day, but if you can give them something they can use and utilize in their daily life, I think uh, people will ultimately like it.
1: So we're discussing an obscure event in the uh, Revolutionary War. What was going on in the Revolutionary War in 1779? In
0: 1779, the American Revolution is a war I think a lot of people wouldn't recognize. Uh, And that's because when we think of the Revolution, uh, we always do we do in history, we think of the end, the Americans win, and we view that as destiny, and we sort of ignore the details of how we got there. Um, As historians, it's our job, it's our responsibility to uh, recognize those details and understand those details. Uh, So if you saw George Washington in 1779, it would not be in a place that most of us would recognize as something we'd see in the American Revolution. Uh, From the beginning, Washington understood uh, what this war was about. Now, he'll lose a lot of battles Uh, That's been sort of a hallmark of his career, but we still recognize him as something of uh, a big-picture guy. And one of the things that shows Washington's brilliance to me is this idea that from the very start of the war, he understands how he's going to win. He knows it's not about winning all the battles. Uh, At his smallest, his army has less than 2,000 men. He's going up against the largest military force in the world. Winning battles will not do you any good to winning this war. He understands that at its very core, the American Revolution is a political event, and to win that, you need a political solution. So, whether we like to recognize it or not, in the 18th century, uh, the British were the freest people in the world. They had regular elections, just like we do. Not a coincidence. Uh, And he understood that there was a large faction in Congress, uh, in Parliament rather, uh, that was very hawkish on the war in America, uh, the Tory Party, the Conservatives. And he understood that if you could ever get the English population to vote them out and replace them with a more pro-peace Whig party who wanted peace with the Americans and general prosperity in the world once trade reignited, that's how you win the war. So for Washington, winning the war was always about making the war long uh, and painful and frustrating and interminable, feeling like it would never end. Uh, Win battles when you can, sure, but most importantly, get out of there, escape live to fight another day. Because as long as he had an army in the field, then the revolution would survive. If he was ever captured, it was finished. So I'm always impressed by Washington's understanding of the revolution. Uh, He'll maintain that throughout the war. The British never really had, uh, I would say, a cohesive strategy for winning the war, so much so that it would change almost every year. Uh, In 1775, they thought the American problem was a Massachusetts problem. So they occupy Boston and we see battles like Bunker Hill. Uh, in 1776, they completely reboot the war. Uh, they believe capturing Washington's army should be the goal. Capture that army, the war is over. Uh, so they occupy New York. They find a foothold in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the country and they hope to suppress the rebellion from there and they'll stay in New York till the end of the war. And General William Howe will chase Washington's Patriot rebels uh, for the better part of that winter. And in 1777, they reboot the war again an entirely new strategy where they invade from Canada and try and cut New England off from the rest of the colonies in the Saratoga campaign, the Hudson River. Uh, And that's a failure. The Americans win there. So time and time and time again, as the seasons change, the British, uh, who really and rightfully believe that every minute or day this rebellion continues is one minute or day too long, will re-strategize or reorganize, appointing new commanders, and Washington is constant throughout. So by 79, where we find ourselves now, Washington has a little breathing room. Uh, The new strategy for the British is to uh, invade the American South. We've been fighting in the Northeast the entire war to this point. 75, 76, 77, 78. Uh, But now the British are looking at South Carolina, Georgia, North Carolina, because they believe, and rightfully so, uh, that there's a huge loyal contingent down there. They can use the British Navy invade the American South, and then march with loyal Americans into the Northeast to suppress the rebellion. So Washington's in New York, not New York City, but upstate New York, in 1779. And he knows the combat's happening in the South. Uh, So what he can do is take care of some of the lingering problems still going on here in the Northeast. And that brings us to, obviously, the place we are now.
1: Talk about the region that we're in right now. What would it have looked like in the 1770s?
0: Part of the reason I I work in this field and why I love coming to these places is because, you know, with only a limited amount of imagination, you can still see the 18th century. Uh, This was the Ohio country. This was the Great West or the Back Country, as they described it. Um, You have to remember, we have a view today of the world from a bird's eye. You know, even even children can recognize the shape of the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, But without flight, without satellites. Imagine viewing the world not from above, but all around you. You know, the notion of this place being a back country for people in Philadelphia or Carlisle, uh, with those mountains looming across like a curtain. I mean, that really resonated with people. So we're in a place where you have an ocean of wilderness. Uh, People used to say a squirrel could jump from Lake Erie to the Gulf of Mexico without ever touching the ground because there were so many trees. Um, That's where we are, and when you're in a place like this, there's only limited places you can sustainably live. Uh, We're in a great location today because we have two prominent waterways behind us. Uh, But if you think of waterways not as we see them today as places to fish or canoe, but think of them as natural superhighways for moving very quickly from one place to another. That's how Europeans and Indians viewed this place. It was inhospitable. It was difficult. It was dark, literally dark in some places. The canopy of the trees was so thick you couldn't see the ground. It was perpetual night. But if you could find a river or a stream, you could trace that, like we would use a GPS on a highway today. So by the time of the Revolution, this place is a battleground. Uh, You're not going to have British Redcoats marching through here. uh, But you are going to have offshoot or resonant battles uh, occurring uh, from people with very deep strategic alliances in the form of native peoples and settlers. But these rivers and streams are everything uh... and it represents the future the west for america has always been tomorrow uh... and this story is very much i think the beginning of the conquest of the west even though we don't think of the revolution that way
1: what did the revolutionary war look like in the western theater
0: uh, brutal terrible uh... we have a very again comfortable view of how we view the revolution we tend to look at war i think as a society like a game like sports uh... the game of football is, in essence, a replay of a battle. The line of scrimmage is a battlefront. You have different armies or teams in different uniforms. You have captains, coaches would be generals, and of course you keep score. So when we think of battles, we we tend to think of them, well, who won? Well, how do you keep score? Well, we have to remember games replicate battles, but battles don't replicate games. So we like to have two big armies. We like to know who killed more of whom, and we like to know, in the end, uh, who is victorious. But you don't always have that closure in a battle. Uh, and that is what makes studying the war in the West so incredibly difficult. So much so, I would argue, that a lot of people have ignored it entirely. Uh, I mean, imagine if you studied World War II and you totally ignored the Pacific Theater because it was a little more difficult to understand, that the rules were as such you weren't so comfortable with. It would be absurd. You would never do that. Uh, and that's how I think we view the American Revolution in the West. In the West, the war was about control of land, control of resources. British allied Indian nations taking on uh, American settlers. Uh, some of them patriots, some of them loyal. Uh, not a lot of big battles, but very quick destructive raids. Uh, that was life on the, on the frontier, that was uncertainty. And that's been that way since the 1750s, maybe even earlier. So in a lot of ways, when you look at the revolution, you know, if you're living here, if you're say a European settler, uh, you have Indians raiding your home, uh, What's well, now what? You know, why they're fighting, what the war is, is immaterial. It's the immediate danger that you fear. Uh, and it's nasty. There's innocent people killed, uh, women and children killed. Uh, you have entire homesteads destroyed. You have battles with no winners. And that's something we hate, but it's, it's a reality of it. And it's important we understand, again, it's not a game, there's no scorekeeping. That is just uh, partisan warfare on the frontier. Uh, And remember, they're fighting for a bigger cause, a bigger reason. When we focus too much on individual battles, even though we're on a battlefield show, we can miss sight of the bigger picture. And that's how the war in the West challenges us. In short, it's an Indian war and it's a terrible one.
1: You mentioned the Indians were allies with the British. They were allies with the British. Who are these Indians? And the Patriots also had allies. Who were their allies?
0: When the British arrive here in North America, uh, one of the things they're really great at in building their empire, is finding existing imperial or powerful forces using those channels of influence to insert their own. Uh, And when the British will come here, they'll see the the powerful Iroquois Confederacy, the Haudenosaunee, based in New York State, really dominating the Northeast, I I would argue, as an empire. So in 1744, the British will make an alliance with the Iroquois, the Haudenosaunee, the people of the Longhouse, the Six Nations. and this will be an alliance we call the Covenant Chain, and it will basically say we'll have this great trading alliance, but more importantly than that, or equally important, uh, in a time of war you'll, you'll join us. So in the Seven Years' War, that relationship worked out very well for the, for the, for the British. Uh, the French also had Indian allies. These were the unwitting subjects of the Iroquois, the Indian nations that were uh, suppressed beneath them. Uh, so for them it was more of a civil war. Uh, But by the time of the American Revolution, the Iroquois have to make a decision Uh, because one of the great things about the Iroquois was that they were something of a confederacy. They met in around Syracuse, New York. They made decisions as a group, even though they were six nations. And they couldn't decide who they wanted to support because if you view the American Revolution as a civil war, British citizens versus British citizens, whose side do you take? The covenant chain says the Iroquois and the British are natural and perpetual allies. Well, what happens when the British fight the British? And this is what really divides the Iroquois uh, very heavily in 1775 and 76 all the way to 77. In 1777, uh, the dam will finally break, so to speak, uh, and it's a catastrophic event for the Iroquois. What happened? Uh, four of the Six Nations will side with King George, Great Britain. Uh, two of the Six Nations will side with the Americans. And that's, that's unique because it's largely the work of just a few people. Uh, patriot missionaries. They built such a relationship through their religion that uh, that the Oneida and the Tuscarora uh, sided with the Americans. And that'll end up being a civil war for the Iroquois. So talk about how confusing is the American Revolution in the West. You know, where do you want to start? For the Iroquois it becomes a literally a civil war uh, where British patriot means very little to them. Uh, but that will fracture the Iroquois Confederacy, this great powerful political force Uh, for generations moving forward. It'll be the end of that. Why? Because of the the politics of the American
1: Revolution uh, overseas. Fort Pitt was the headquarters of the Continental Army in the West. What sort of operations took place before the event we're going to talk about today? Fort Pitt will never
0: see major combat in the American Revolution. It's a diplomatic position. Uh, If you're the Commandant of Fort Pitt, you're the commander not just of uh, of the forks of the Ohio or modern Pittsburgh, or even western Pennsylvania, but you're the commander of several small satellite forts in West Virginia, in the state of Ohio, uh, in places that we would think they may be as far as Kentucky, okay. That's where you are. Uh, when I say it wasn't necessarily a hub of military operations, it's because when you're dealing with Indians, that is making treaties with them or wars with them as the United States in its infancy is trying to do, Fort Pitt is your home base. That's where it happens. So a good example. We asked previously about British Indian allies. Do the Americans have them? The Americans will have some Indian allies in the war. Uh, we're not very good allies, but we have them with the Lenny Lenape, or the Delaware Indians. In September of 1778, a year before our story today, uh, the United States will sign the very first treaty ever in its history with an Indian nation at Fort Pitt with the Delaware. It's called the Treaty of Fort Pitt. So that's the value of Fort Pitt. Uh, It is, again, the command of the Western Post where there's very little British versus Patriot conflict, a lot of Indian fighting, Uh, but it's a diplomatic place. So America cements its alliance with the Delaware, probably the most important uh, treaty ever signed there in 1778. Uh, As we'll see, they'll be on this expedition with Daniel Broadhead, the Delaware, as vital scouts.
1: You said earlier Washington had some time to deal with unfinished business up here because the war had shifted south. What were his biggest concerns in the spring of 1779?
0: I think, I like to think Washington was a little more relaxed in the spring of 79 uh, because bodily harm was not a concern for him. The big armies, they were in Georgia. They were in the Carolinas. So from New York, he could sort of sit back and calculate. we know where the main fighting is. Where's this subsidiary fighting? What's our bigger problems? And one of the things that's happened in 70, 78 and 79 has been that British Allied Indians, along with what we call Tory militia, or loyal Americans, have teamed up and they are raiding and destroying uh, known patriot villages in central New York, in eastern Pennsylvania. It's a horrible war. Uh, because it's partisan. It pits neighbor versus neighbor. Uh, They are arresting each other, they're locking each other up under whose authority? The authority of the Continental Congress, Uh, the authority of Parliament. Well, what if you don't agree with either of those? Uh, There is no law and order when you have different sides basically dictating law based on whose army is in your village that day. So, two events will really frighten Washington. Uh, And they'll both be horrific Indian raids. One is called the the Cherry Valley Massacre, which will occur in New York. uh, And the other, which we'll be detailing later this season, uh, will be the Wyoming Massacre. And these are quick, very violent Indian loyal raids uh, that kill many innocent people. And more importantly for Washington, uh, see a lot of crops burned, a lot of supplies destroyed. Northeastern PA was sometimes called the breadbasket of the Continental Army. And the Indians knew that. Uh, So when they raided, men like Joseph Brandt, great uh, Iroquois Indian chief, uh, corn planter, they made sure they burned everything they couldn't take. Because if Washington's army couldn't eat, Washington's army couldn't be effective. So for him, when he saw the fighting going on down south, he said, how can I deal with Britain's great ally and our great nuisance here in the Northeast? And it was these Iroquois uh, bands and Tory militia allies that were marching through the area.
1: Who was the administrator of Fort Pitt at that time? That's a difficult question based on when you're asking. Um,
0: At the time we're dealing with, the man we're going to meet and see on this campaign, who would have marched right behind us, uh, is a colonel named Daniel Broadhead. But before that, uh, the commandant of Fort Pitt was sort of a very fluid, rotating position. Um, A lot of resignations, a lot of reassignments. Uh, Pittsburgh was a very unruly place to to, to try and exercise any control. Uh, very famously, in the 1760s, uh, a British colonel, he was a Swiss mercenary named Henry Bouquet, uh, described Pittsburgh as a colony sprung from hell because the people who lived in this area, uh, they didn't respect authority, they didn't desire authority. Uh, if you were an army or a commandant trying to exercise authority, whether you were British or American or French or whoever, uh, you were trying to tell them how to live their lives, and they had no interest in that at all. So the people who lived in the West were very self-sufficient, obviously because they had to build their own homes, till their own fields, but they had this very distinct anti-authority bent, which made it really difficult. When the revolution begins, a lot of these people are very anti-Britain. You know, some people are surprised to hear about the Hannistown Resolves, which was made in Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania, a year before the uh, Declaration of Independence, which sort of said, if Britain doesn't change what they're doing, we will secede. We will rebel. And that was a year before the Declaration of Philadelphia. That came from the Ohio country. Uh, so at first, I think a lot of patriots, politically speaking, think these are our people. Then they get out there and they build forts and they plant their flag. Uh, and they quickly find out, well, these people don't want you here either. They want to be left alone. So the Commandant at Fort Pitt is a position where you have to deal with young men in your garrison who are very far from home, uh, always undersupplied, always malnourished. Uh, you have to deal with the uncertainty of possible Indian attack at literally any time. You never see it coming. And then you have a general population who is just as likely to spit on you as do what they're told. So it's not It's not a good scene. Um, Washington had a commander at Fort Pitt, and again, if you're the commander of Fort Pitt, you're the head of the entire Western Department of the Continental Army, named Edward Hand. Edward Hand was told to march into Ohio in 1778 uh, and find any enemy Indians that might be allied with the British in the Great Lakes at Fort Detroit, destroy them. Uh, well, he went out with his men, he only ended up killing friendly, allied Delawares. He didn't kill any enemy Indians at all. They called it the Squaw Campaign because they mostly killed women and children. It was a disaster. Uh, The next commander will be a guy named Lachlan McIntosh. Uh, He was given the position as commandant of Fort Pitt because he shot and killed Button Gwinnett, who signed the Declaration of Independence. And as a punishment, he had to serve at Fort Pitt. That was his punishment for murdering a signer of the Declaration of Independence. So McIntosh was a problem as well. He couldn't control anyone. Uh, He couldn't launch any sort of expedition because he wasn't organized. So Washington will call on... One of his most trusted associates, heavy Pennsylvania ties, Colonel Daniel Broadhead. And he will be the commander of Fort Pitt uh, for the expedition we're talking about here in
1: 1779. Talk about the strategy behind the Sullivan-Clinton Broadhead campaigns. It gets back to Washington's view. How do we crush the Iroquois?
0: Um, when, when Washington's uh, sort of strategizing, understand that he's dealt with Indians for a long time. In 1753, he was on this very spot in Franklin, at the Indian village of Venango. He was inexperienced then. He learned over the next 20 years. Um, And he understood that uh, the Indians had a way of life that existed here in the Northeast for centuries. Uh, And you could easily disrupt that by damaging and destroying uh, their homes and settlements. So Washington will, in February of 1779, be given uh, freedom by the Continental Congress through a resolution that he will have strict control over what happens to the future of the frontier and its Indian inhabitants. Uh, and after communicating with uh, General Nathaniel Green, who is down south, uh, Green says, you know, if you're going to raid the Iroquois, do it in June when their crop is half grown. Because the way the Indians would farm is the way that many Europeans learn to farm from them. Uh, grow your corn in the summer, harvest it for the harsh winter ahead. So he believed that if you, could, if you could raid those villages in June uh, when it was too late to replant their crops, burn everything, that would be the way to do it. So Washington will call on uh, Generals uh, Sullivan and Clinton to effectively march armies into the, uh, uh, into the central New York region where the Iroquois live and wage total war, destroy everything. Uh, Clinton would come from Schenectady, New York and move west. Sullivan would come out of East PA, and move north. And the third wing of that would be an attack from Fort Pitt up the Allegheny River into the heart of Iroquois country. Uh, and this would effectively, uh, even though he does say in a letter he wants to encourage friendly Indians as well, uh, would annihilate the Iroquois world as we know it. That's the plan.
1: So the goal wasn't just to uh, find enemy Indians and take them out, it was also to destroy their culture.
0: It was exactly right. You know, we struggle with how to think about the Sullivan-Clinton-Broadhead campaign because it doesn't necessarily fit into our traditional military uh, modus operandi. You know, we will attack and destroy in a time of war, but never with the purpose of utterly annihilating a culture. You know, we bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but people still live in those cities today. Uh, What we're talking about here is a measured, calculated effort to not just destroy people's villages, but to utterly and totally eliminate uh, their cultural connection to the land. That is to say, the future of America, the future of the Allegheny River Valley, or the Mohawk River Valley, where most of the Iroquois lived, or the Susquehanna River Valley, will be a future without Indians. And I think that's very important.
1: Tell us more about the route that Broadhead took from Fort Pitt to where we are today and beyond.
0: Broadhead will initially, when he finds out about this campaign in Iroquois, be very excited about it. Uh, Broadhead is a man who was born in New York, but lived most of his life in Pennsylvania. He owned a home in, in what is today say, East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, and he wintered with Washington at Valley Forge. Uh, he served with Washington uh, in some other locations during the war early on. Uh, he spent some time in the West, in Ohio. So I think one of the reasons that Washington appoints Broadhead was because Broadhead understood Washington. And when Broadhead hears about this campaign, he's very excited. He knows the route you go because the Allegheny is a superhighway into New York. Uh, but he gets word shortly after from Washington in the winter that the expedition's canceled. Even though he gets that message from Washington that it's canceled, he still prepares anyway. And I think that talks about how, uh, how synced up they were as a, as a commander and a subordinate officer. Uh, but one of the things Broadhead wants to do, is exploit, whenever possible, the gifts that Mother Nature gives them. The Allegheny River Valley is one of those gifts. If you travel this river valley, uh, you're basically surrounded on either side by very tall, jagged peaks, covered in trees. Uh, So, if you're worried about feeling safe, this is not a place you're going to feel safe. You're surrounded by high ground all the time. At any time that floodplain opens up on either the left or right bank, you're typically going to see an Indian village, like the location we're in today. Uh, So for Broadhead, the route north wasn't really a problem. It was really mapped out for him. What the problem was would be moving north with his men safely. So even though Washington had already canceled the expedition in the early part of 1779, Broadhead will order a man named Samuel Brady, very famous frontiersman, Indian fighter type, uh, to dress in Indian war paint. Uh, in some cases, and harass the small villages in and around the city of Pittsburgh. Really, all of the villages up to where we sit right now. Uh, and the reason for that was he wanted those villages to be cleared out by the time his army came through, because that would give him several days of peace and quiet. He knew that the, the, the target was uh, the Pennsylvania-New York border, mostly in the state of New York, uh, but he'd be burning along the way. If Samuel Brady and his militia could push people out in the meantime, empty out the villages, uh, that's something he wanted to do. The next thing he would do would be to build subordinate fortifications moving north. So, if you view Fort Pitt sort of as a sun, you have this whole solar system of forts all around it. One of the places he'll build a fort is called, uh, he'll call it Fort Armstrong, is at what is today katanning Pennsylvania, the former site of the massive Indian village just down the river, Catanning. Uh, it was destroyed in 1756. They'll build Fort Armstrong there in 79. All of this is is a reason for Broadhead to lay the foundation, to to lay a safe route north, uh, following the Allegheny River to get him into Iroquois countries as fast as possible. One of the things he did whenever Washington canceled the expedition, but he had a feeling, I think, Broadhead, it would be back on shortly, uh, he accrued men. He had uh, 700 men for this expedition. Uh, With them, they had 400 draft animals, Uh, and then they floated a whole bunch of supplies on the river beside them. So if you can picture Broadhead's army marching along this river valley, you'd have 700 men in a long line along the banks of the river. You'd have several barges alongside of them, and then you'd have another 400 very slow pack animals behind them. And you can see, when you imagine how difficult that is to move, if you've ever been in a group or taken a tour or been on a field trip, how difficult it is to move even 30 people. You know, moving 700 people with all that support, you're going to move very slowly and deliberately, but you want to make sure it's safe on the way north. So that's what Broadhead does in the spring of 79 to prepare for his march that will come in the summer.
1: Were there trails along the banks of, of these rivers and creeks, or were they also going inland some degree to find... Uh, portage areas around possibly obstructions in the rivers. All along the Allegheny,
0: you will have small floodplains, but not much. You know, the world we see it today is one that has been cleared and plowed and bulldozers have flattened it. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is there's only one way to move alongside this river. And that's why for a long time, the Indians and the French and the earliest British settlers, they canoed and, and kayaked and bateaued everywhere because you didn't Really want to walk alongside the river if you if you could avoid it, so there was always a small portion of a uh, location you could walk. there were well established Indian trails to get around that but again if you 're broadhead you don 't want to take seven hundred men, four hundred draft animals, uh, and not to mention all your supplies are in the water too far off the trail if you can avoid it. so they were basically thinned out along the edge of the uh, of the riverbank uh, really until you get to or pretty close to the location we are now. Very slow, very deliberate, but that's, what was all, that's why we saw so much precaution early on.
1: So we've talked about the importance of French Creek and Allegheny River right here, but did they ever leave the river trail uh, at some point during their journey northward?
0: Uh, good, that's a good question. If you look at the Allegheny from above, uh, it's not a, by no means a straight shot into New York. What it is is, is, is winding, there's bends, there's a large hook in it. Uh, which takes you pretty far west out of your way rather than north. So right around the location we are now, we aren't sure where this happens exactly. Uh, Daniel Broadhead will take his men off of the river itself uh, to sort of try and connect the beginning of that sharp bend to the end of it, so to shorten the distance between them. Uh, There is some evidence they crossed over the Clarion River, uh, which is an offshoot of the Allegheny, so we think that could be a possible route, but we aren't sure exactly where this derivation was. What I do have, if if you'll permit me to read it, uh, is uh, an account that was published in the Maryland Journal uh, later that year that described the journey off of the water. Because again, you know, it's sort of the devil you know versus the devil you don't. You know the dangers of moving along the river. Uh, you can easily be ambushed. Uh, but when you start going into the, into the mountains, into the forest, that is a whole new level of fear. So here's an account of one of the men who were on the expedition. He says, quote, We proceeded by a blind path, through a country almost impassable. By reason of the stupendous heights and frightful declivities, we continued uh, on a range of craggy hills, overspread with fallen timber, thorns, and underwood whose deep impenetrable gloom has always been impervious to the piercing rays of the warmest sun. When I look at the trees around us and the hills beside us, this still matches up to me. Um, It's a dangerous place. We have roads and highways and bridges now, which make us feel invincible. Uh, But if you dropped any of us in some of these forests overnight, uh, it would be a very different story. So that's what Broadhead did. And the reason was you know he probably took at least three days maybe four days maybe a week off of his trip um, by making that shortcut but you want to make sure when you make a shortcut that it's it's not it's done quickly because you don't want to as we say dilly dally in the in the uh in the dark in the dark forest
1: the battle of thompson island takes place uh, on august 18th or 19th we don't know the precise date what happened and uh, can you tell us more about uh, why the date is not certain
0: uh, we know broadhead will leave with his 700 men, 400 pack animals, uh, and his whole boatload of supplies. Well, he'll leave Fort Pitt on August 11th. Uh, That meant that he had basically been preparing for this expedition, really, I mean, certainly from spring of 1779, but uh, even in the wintertime, you started to see some of these early raids occurring because it wasn't expected. Uh, So we have that date. What we don't know is... Uh, when the battle happens exactly because again these details in the West when you study the American Revolution are far more difficult to trace than in the in the East. When you look at Eastern theaters you have big battles, thousands of people. When you look at the Western battles you're talking about dozens or hundreds of people. In the East you're seeing people from Philadelphia and Boston and New York, well-to-do educated people. Here in the West literacy is not exactly their strong suit at this time. So they're not going to have the best journals, or recollections, or care of exact dates. But we know that about a week after Broadhead leaves Fort Pitt, um, so either August 18th or 19th, they're heading, uh, after their shortcut, back along the Allegheny River Valley, into a stretch that Broadhead believed would be especially challenging for them. It was basically a straight shot. Uh, This is just above what is today Ute and Tyanesta PA. Uh, just south of Irvine, Pennsylvania, on the Allegheny River. So Route 62. Uh, will follow this exactly. So when you drive on that road, you can feel the fear he has. And he knows it's a problem because at the top of that stretch, at the northern end of that stretch, uh, there are two pretty significant Indian villages. Uh, One was called Buckaloons, and the other one was called, much bigger, Conewago. That approach will be treacherous, he thinks, because, to this point, they found villages. But remember, we mentioned he sent out those early light infantry forces in the spring under Samuel Brady, basically scared people out of them. So they burned those empty villages with no problem. But Broadhead believed as they entered that stretch, uh, this was likely to be— because you're getting pretty close to, or closer than before, to the New York border— this was very likely to be where they're going to run into their first encounters with Indian peoples. Imagine or visualize Broadhead's army being, as I said, a long, thin line. Yes, he has 700 men, but they're stretched out by one account over a mile at that point. So the people at the front of that army, and really at the front of any army, uh, are people we would call light infantry or the vanguard of the army, the point of the spear, as it's always, as it's always called. And this is under the command of a colonel named John Harden. The people at the front are your best shots your most experienced frontiersmen. Maybe they're not even soldiers. Maybe they're not even wearing uniforms. They're just exceptional hunters. People always talk about the American riflemen being such an exceptional shot. The British in the war could never contend with the American riflemen because they'd hunt deer and rabbits and small game. They could hit them at a distance. So these are the people you have in the front. Again, you know, literacy, education, not always their, their strongest suit. Um, but as they're moving uh, along the river, They're going to encounter a small island in the Allegheny. And the Allegheny River has hundreds of tiny islands, alluvial islands we call them, uh, that occur in the middle of the river. As they're moving toward one of these alluvial islands, they will encounter a force of Western Seneca, or Mingo Indians. Um, And the fighting there is intense, 10 to 12 minutes, probably max and the Indians involved dispersed relatively quickly. The question we run into, and this is where we can talk maybe in a bit about sources, is how do you nail down a battle like that? Because it's hardly a battle at all. And and as we see, neither side really saw it coming. Visualize the way we talk about Gettysburg. We almost have it down to the man. What what each platoon or regiment was doing in the Battle of Gettysburg. All the
1: communications were rigidly kept.
0: It's all there. This is as different as you can get. Uh, So one of the reasons that I uh, have worked on this battle for a while, and there really aren't many people. I did an article on it in the Journal of the American Revolution in 2015. To my knowledge, it's still the most ever been written on it.
1: Which is why you're the perfect guest for the show. uh, Thank
0: you very much. Uh, There's all these questions, and you really have to put on your historian's hat. You really have to be a sleuth to find this out. And that's why I like the article so much, and why I'm glad I can be here. We can talk about it.
1: How do we know what occurred during the battle, and can you go into more detail about this vanguard that encountered this group of uh, mingo?
0: Remember, when we're dealing with this battle, we're not dealing with Broadhead's full 700 men. Broadhead, in reality, is probably almost a mile away by the time he hears firing shots at the front. This alluvial island will become known as Thompson's Island, but it really didn't have a name back then. Uh, It was just one of these islands that existed in the river. Now, according to uh, the men who were in the front, John Hardin's men who were in the front, um, we get two very different stories. One of them says, uh, the Indians rushed out of the woods. uh, Hardin ordered his men in a half-moon formation with tomahawks and bayonets, and they charged at the Indians, and the Indians stood no chance, and they were melted away into the woods. Uh, another account uh, from an Irish immigrant, a young man in his teens who was there, says that when the two groups encountered each other, uh, the Americans actually tried to parlay with the Indians initially. They called them over for a uh, discussion. And as they called them over, some of the Americans would hide along the sides of the riverbanks.
1: Must have made the Indians suspicious. Make them
0: suspicious. And according to this Irishman, one of the Indians saw these, these men hiding, and they opened fire. So the Americans responded and again, it ends with the Indians fleeing off into the woods. Uh, You have to remember the Allegheny River would look very different back then. Today we've dammed it and we've built locks and things like that. So the river's a lot deeper and wider now. It would have been more narrow. So that would have made more sense. Um, That's mostly what we get from them. We know that most of Broadhead's men never participated in the battle. It was a hot firefight for less than 15 minutes, probably more like 10, but here's where you know, I think the new school of thought in this time period benefits. All the great works of Western frontier history were done in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. You know, whenever I went to school, those are the books I had to read. And they talked about, you know, Indians as savages and red men and all these horrible things that have no place in a modern academic study. Um, But what uh, my generation of historians would do, and there's really for the 20 years before me too, you know, we asked ourselves, what if Indians were not just secondary people here? What if they were primary players? What did they say about the events? And this interpretation has allowed us to get better understandings of everything from the Battle of the Little Bighorn uh, in Montana to this event here at Thompson Island. In 1850, uh, so 80 years after the battle, 70 years after the battle, um, a man named Charles O'Bale, who was Iroquois, he was Seneca, was interviewed. He was not at the battle. Uh, But, through oral traditions, he spoke to elders who apparently were at this battle. And according to them, they said they were participating in a hunting party. And from what we know about Iroquois hunting methods, this all checks out. It was led by two men, one whose English name was Captain Crow, and the other, Red Eye. Uh, And what they were doing was uh, a very common technique in the river valley for hunting deer. These parties were usually 20 to 25 people, not really bigger than that because it gets to be counterproductive at that point. Uh, But apparently, according to Charles O'Bale, from what he was told, passed down through the generations, uh, most of this Seneca hunting party were in the forest. So if you can visualize them on the western bank of the Allegheny. And they were moving toward the river, okay, uh, pushing deer. And about 10 to 12 of this hunting party was on that alluvial island we call Thompson's Island with guns. And the hope was the majority of the hunting party would push the deer into the river and the deer would rather go on the island than the water. They'd run on the island, the Indians would shoot them there and that's what they would eat. Pretty common hunting technique. It makes total sense from what the Europeans or the Americans wrote, how they stumbled upon about a dozen or so Indians uh, and what those a dozen or so Indians were doing on the island, waiting to catch a deer running at them, that this was a total what we would call meeting engagement. This was not planned, no one, expected anyone to be here. There really was no advantageous ground. Um, Meeting engagements are pretty frequent, probably the most famous battle in American history, certainly the biggest in the history of the Western Hemisphere, the Battle of Gettysburg. Very famously, meeting engagement, people just bumped into each other. There wasn't much of a choice of high ground, so you took the best you could. Uh, That's very much what this was. Uh, The front of Broadhead's Vanguard bumping into an Iroquois hunting party who had no idea that they were coming. That's the Battle of Thompson's Island. There's been very little archeology span on the site. There is a historic marker, but the site looks basically the way it looked in 1779. There's some some cabins along the river on Route 62, but not near the island itself. Um, Very difficult battle to pin down, but when you look at American sources and Indian sources, because they were there too, uh, you get, I think, a more complete image of it. For what it's worth, Some people in Broadhead's campaign who were not at the front but in the back said there was 100 Indians. And of course we whipped them all, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Broadhead said he thinks four to five Indians were killed. And that, I think, would line up pretty well with, with all the other sources that we've seen.
1: He would have talked to various people who were at the front. You said he was lagging back a little bit and wouldn't have had direct eye contact with what was going on. Right. So he took the best of what he knew of his troops and put together a decent story. Right. And
0: if the bodies were behind, that's something as they walked by, they could easily easily count. Again, what we heard is when the fighting started, the Indians bolted after about 10 minutes. So uh, it's very likely a very chaotic scene. A lot of smoke in the wilderness, but over quickly.
1: So after this meeting engagement, what did Broadhead do next with the campaign?
0: This is when the real heart of the campaign, as far as the destruction it causes, begins. Broadhead believed that that hunting party was a war party. He was wrong, at least we think. And he believed that a counterattack would be coming. So when he got to the very top of that channel we talked about in the Allegheny River to what is today called the Broken Straw Creek, that was the site of the village of Buckaloons. Buckaloons was abandoned. Uh, looked like it had been abandoned for weeks. So they, they built a quick breastworks. They anticipated another attack coming. The men built it quickly, they waited three days, something like that, uh, but it never came. So I think, for me, that was Broadhead trying to make up for being surprised earlier. Surprised me once, shame on me, right? Surprised me twice, that sort of thing. Plus, shame they had an you. area
1: they could spread out and, and do that, whereas if they were in a cut of an Allegheny River, they didn't have a lot of expanse to yes. do that in.
0: right. So that's where it was. Um, and that location, it's today Irvine, Pennsylvania. I gave us a lecture there when this first came out on the site. It's still exactly the way it looked. We had, like, 70 people sitting out in the field by the, by the creek, Wonderful. Broken Straw Creek, it's called, uh, that's the English version of the name the French gave it in the 1750s. Uh, they called it uh, Pai Coupi or Pai Coupé, uh, the broken straw, because the straw was cut when they got there. So we, that still lingers even still today. They then continued uh, eastward, because the river turns toward what is say Warren, Pennsylvania, uh, the big village of Conewago. He expected the fight to really be there. It wasn't. It was abandoned as well. Uh, so for Sullivan and Clinton, who are marching through New York, burning and destroying and pillaging and fighting, Broadhead's sort of like, yeah, he's burning and destroying, but there's nobody here. He's burning abandoned villages. Um, so for him, it doesn't it doesn't equate. For the real payoff for him, if you want to say that in a pretty terrible way, uh, is when he crosses over into New York to the village of Yucruwango, Uh because there he sees a, a giant village, uh, 500 acres of corn, empty, but maybe only a few hours, fires were still smoldering. It's like the people there got up and ran within the day.
1: Do we know why they left or or why there wasn't more warriors around? Well, they knew that Broadhead was coming. I mean, that's the easiest way.
0: And again, when you're in June or July, you're talking about hunting parties going out. Those hunting parties that he met or encountered at Thompson Island could have been from there. It wasn't that far. So a lot of the warriors are hunters at that point. Um, It was abandoned and this is where Broadhead really really wreaks havoc. He burns 500 acres of corn. That's the acreage that he couldn't take back with him. Uh, Dozens of pots and kettles, these are all vital things for Indians to live by in the 18th century now. You know, the days of uh, of life before Europeans, that's 200 years ago. No one remembers how to survive without these new European commodities. He takes furs, he takes skins, and then he burns everything. And again, he burns 500 acres of corn. Uh, That's what they don't take with them. Uh, when, when they do that, that village is entirely destroyed. And that is effectively the end of, of any recognizable sense of Indian culture or history in the Allegheny River Valley. Um, it's, it's, it's overwhelmingly impressive.
1: He took some booty during this uh, damage campaign that he was doing. Uh, what was the result of the damage that he inflicted and, and what uh, did they sell it for later?
0: We know when they get back to Fort Pitt, the number they get is $30,000. Worth of goods, and that's a lot in the frontier. Um, a lot in
1: 1779 dollars.
0: Yeah, that's a, <laughs> yeah, a lot now. <laughs> yeah, um, that's a lot. That's a lot then. So it's it's catastrophic for them. When Wash when when Broadhead returns home, he's going to return basically the way he came, uh, but he's going to split his army. This is important too, because there's one more village he's going to annihilate, uh, and it's near the site of today Meadville, Pennsylvania. He will send Samuel Brady and an a, and a officer named Matthew Jack to separate off uh, when they get back into over what would today be the Pennsylvania border uh, and head toward Lake Erie and then march south along the French Creek, burning and pillaging as they go. There's one large village there. They destroy that uh, with similar damage to Wango. It was only recently abandoned. It's still filled with vital stores. Uh, and where we are now, literally where we're sitting is where uh, Broadhead's army coming down the Allegheny and Brady and Jack's army coming down the French Creek would have met. So literally we are on the spot. You can't get more, more battlefield Pennsylvania than this. Uh, I'm sure there's still archeological remains on the site where we are now, because I don't know of any major uh, excavations that have been done here. So this is the location that it occurs. Um, the damage is overwhelming. The armies get together, it's celebratory when they're here, because they know what's ahead of them down the river. They've already burned and destroyed it. There's really no threat. And
1: they're pretty close to home at that point. And
0: they're pretty close to home. You get in this river, you go to one place, you go to Pittsburgh. So for them, uh, it's an overwhelming achievement. And as we can talk about maybe next, for Washington, I think the most successful campaign he ever launches in the entire war.
1: When you say it was the most successful campaign, are you talking about the Sullivan-Clinton-Broadhead campaign or just this particular campaign? Uh,
0: the totality of the three. You really can't understand the Broadhead campaign without understanding its more famous counterparts. It was a three-pronged attack. Uh, one of the things that never materialized uh, in Washington's plan for this, and this is maybe the only failure it has, as far as destroying the Iroquois Ability Wage War, uh, this was, this was uh, a, a complete victory. Uh, He not only eliminated the Iroquois ability to wage war in 1779 and 1780, uh, but he literally eliminated the Iroquois Confederacy as it stood. They were already split politically over the war, but to physically destroy their homes uh, and destroy their villages to the point where they couldn't come back and recover in the way they had for for centuries before. Uh, That was something that, you know, Washington could only have dreamed of. The results were more than he would have ever anticipated. Where he does fall short is that, And this is sort of, I think, uh, where you get into the very murky waters of perhaps war crimes, uh, is that one of the other things Washington wanted to do was when he destroyed these villages, he wanted to force all the uh, now refugee Indians, women and children, the elderly, along with the warriors, to flood to the nearest British fort for help. The nearest British fort was uh, was, uh, on Lake Ontario. It was uh, Fort Niagara. Uh, the original intention was for Sullivan Clinton Broadhead to actually move on Fort Niagara and destroy it. It's my, one of my favorite forts in North America. It's Right outside Youngstown, New York. Uh, that didn't happen, but the refugee crisis did hit Fort Niagara, so as it turned out, with the compilation of the destruction of the villages and having no food at all, they burned it all, uh, the, the winter of 79 and 80 was one of the coldest and harshest on record. So you had you had this terribly brutally cold winter on top of having no food. Uh, All the Iroquois poured into Fort Niagara and completely overwhelmed the fortification to the point where it was no longer effective. It was filled with refugees, crying mothers, starving children. It was a nightmare, but that was Washington's design. It overwhelmed
1: British with these refugees that we had caused by annihilating the villages upstream.
0: So it not only did the damage in in, in August and September of 1779, but for the entire winter of 79 and 80, Fort Niagara, which was basically their their Fort Pitt, their Western headquarters, was completely out of commission because it was just overwhelmed with this horrible humanitarian crisis. And I wish I could say it got better for the Indians over the next 150 years, but it really doesn't.
1: You mentioned some of the locations that we might visit if we were going to reconstruct what happened during this battle and this campaign. Can you give us more details about that or any future archaeological digs we might consider around this area sure um, i grew up in freeport pennsylvania so i was i was literally
0: raised on the banks of the allegheny um, as you go along the allegheny out of pittsburgh it's a very industrial river but it starts to level out it starts to become more wild um, it's a great river for kayaking it's a great river for fishing and boating and and for me you know, that's the way you need to see this campaign, the way they saw it. You can drive up uh, along the Allegheny River at its length and you can follow Broadhead's exact footsteps, uh, and you can see the remnants of the villages we talked about. Places like this, the confluence of the French Creek and the Allegheny, this is as good as any place to see it. Um, But it's one of those things you need to experience, I think, from the water. You know, to come upon Thompson Island, either out of Warren and down, uh, or Against the current moving northward, if you have a more powerful boat, you get a sense of the the claustrophobia that's involved in it. You get a sense of the danger that's involved in it. Uh, and you get a sense that you know no one's really at home in the forest. The idea that the Indians were you know sort of in their natural habitat that is a, not a place you want to fight anyone. you know their natural habitat was at home in their cabins with their families. It's not in the middle of the woods, but you know to get lost in the forest. Hikers will tell you this, it's it's almost spiritual in a way, when you add in history, and especially how much or how little has changed, uh, really the whole Allegheny River Valley is your battlefield. And where we are in Franklin is just a really good place to get a pretty good sense of that
1: uh, for a day trip. We just have a couple minutes left. Uh, Do you have any comments on what the takeaway should be from the uh, historical value of this battle? Well, I've wrestled with this. Um,
0: As far as the immediate impact on the war, we mentioned it. Iroquois is leveled, so the raids will stop. Fort Niagara is overwhelmed with refugees on Lake Ontario, so that fort's out of commission. Uh, But I think in a larger sense, you know, what Broadhead, Sullivan, and Clinton were doing, Broadhead as well especially, uh, was laying a blueprint for the expansion of the United States. Uh, Because again, in every other war we fought, when we conquer an enemy, uh, we do it to win the war. We don't do it to fundamentally eliminate a way of life of a people. And as America moves west, whether you're dealing with uh, a, a Battle of um, Tippecanoe, with uh, Tecumseh and Tenskotawa, whether you're dealing with, uh, as we mentioned, some of the major Indian battles of the west, Little Bighorn, Wounded Knee, these sorts of things, uh, Beecher Island. You know, this is the blueprint for America's growth. Uh, America is built in its expanding form uh, on the remnants and remains of hundreds of other nations. And that's something that we have to wrestle with. Uh, this is not sort of us taking New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, Colorado, California from Mexico in a war with a treaty. Uh, this was the blueprint. It was harsh, it was terrible. Washington would freely admit that, but he would say it was necessary. Um, and America's you know, long history with its Indian peoples, you know, we still have not reconciled that. Um, And I don't know how long that takes, but that's, you know, very much part of history. We're living in the the wake of of major events, and these are the sort of things as Americans in a pluralistic society we have to deal with all the time. So I'm not going to say it starts here, but boy is it highly indicative of what happens there, because once those villages and those people are gone from this river valley, they never come back.
1: Well, that's all we have today for Battlefield Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank Brady for being a guest today. If you have any questions about this episode or suggestions for future episodes, please visit our website at PCNTV.com. For everyone at Battlefield Pennsylvania, so long.